Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And hello again, everyone. Mike Adams sitting in for Jesse Allen. Jesse will be back with you next week to kick off the year. Glad you're with us. And again, happy holidays. We look forward to wrapping it up here today for 2023. And we'll do so talking with Chuck Connor, president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. We're going to talk about Farm Bill and what we might uh, see as way of getting a Farm Bill in 2024. We're going to talk transportation issues with Mike Steenhook, executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. We'll talk about not only situation here in the U.S. We have uh, the water levels on the rivers to be concerned about. We have the rail situation, of course, uh, on the southern border. And we also have an issue at the Panama Canal. We'll go over all that with Mike Steenhook. And we'll look ahead to 2024 and the priorities for the beef industry as Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association will be joining us a little bit later on. So a chance here at the end of the year to kind of review 2023 and look ahead to 2024. And we're going to do that with the markets now as we are joined by Dwayne Bussey with Bolt Marketing. Dwayne, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, what a wild year 2023 has been. Plenty of volatility and some uh, kind of strange occurrences. Hard to figure some of the things, that, <laughs> the way the markets went this year. When you look at 2023, what stands out to you? Uh, for me, looking back at 2023, sadly, is probably going to be the year that I'll say we, we lost the bull corn market. Um, we didn't have trendline yields or above trendline yields, but the darn South America crop, mainly the one out of Brazil, was so big for the corn crop that uh, we kind of lost a little bit of our demand edge here. And you know, and higher prices did that as well, curved demand. And, and now we're at the lower end of the year range, and we've got ending stocks over 2 billion bushels and you know, an outlook next year that we, I think we can lose 4 million acres and still stay above 2 billion for an ending stock. So I guess when I look back at 2023, sadly, it's kind of, for me, it's a bearish turn in the corn market. So that's how we start 2024 with that bearish pressure then? That's what I think so. You know, no, I'm friendly, actually, corn at this price because we're the cheapest in the world. Like I said, we're at the basically 52-week lows. I don't want to get bearish at the bottom here. It's just, you know, when I look back, we had a bullish situation that, that did kind of get fixed or went away, you could say. so. And we do have a lot of pressure up over top of this market because every time we have a rally, Mike, we're going to have a lot of farmers selling this old crop corn. Mm-hmm. So that'll keep the market suppressed a little bit. But, uh, yeah, like a true broker, let me talk both ways a little bit and <laughs> say that I'm not bearish at these prices. Yeah, it's interesting if you uh, see some trucks lined up uh, ready to sell grain, you know that there's been a little rally in the market. They react pretty quickly. <laughs> we really do as producers. And I think in the corn market, we're, we're generally pretty undersold. Um, and January is always a big month as far as moving cash grain. So it's going to be hard to get the market to rally. But, you know, I'm one that's been watching this drought in Brazil, and I think it's going to have a pretty big effect on their second corn crop, at least the amount of acres they even plant, you know, and their prices dropped a lot too, right? So maybe their producers back off of the acres planted in the second crop. So there could be a bullish story. We just need some spark. We need to get the funds excited about the corn market and that could rally it. It just, it might not happen the first half of January like we want, all the producers want. It just might take a little while. Talking with Dwayne Bussey with Bolt Marketing. So um, 
So we're keeping an eye, of course, on South America and their weather, but we also watch our winter weather here as we try to catch up on precipitation going into spring planting time. And that's that's a huge issue, isn't it? It really is. You know, the drought monitor comes out every Thursday morning and saw it yesterday come out. And there's one area I'm keeping a close eye on, and, and it's Iowa, quite frankly, that's got some some red on that drought monitor chart indicator and that's you know so that's just it i I talk as if the great bull runs over in corn and maybe it is but we still got to produce a crop here and weather scares will still happen i'm just right now leaning towards the weather scares we have in the spring whether it's you know maybe i was a little dry when we go into planting those rallies are probably meant to be sold because of our big old crop that's hanging out there but the markets, one thing, especially in 2023, when there were all kinds of questions or doubts or concerns about what we were going to produce, mm-hmm. the market just seemed to take the attitude many times, oh, it'll be there. <laughs> you know, and it seems like it takes a lot to really uh, shake the market as far as a, a real weather concern. It, it, it does anymore, and you're right. And after this last year, it might be hard to get much of a mm-hmm. weather scare rally, right? Uh, exactly to your point. But the second we get complacent that way I, I i go back and think of 2012 and i was one that was poo-pooing the drought early on of course we were wetter up here in northeast south dakota um i didn't think it was that bad and then also we started cutting silage in southern south dakota and i'm seeing these reports that yeah there's corn there but or, or corn stocks but there's no ears out there and it's like oh wait wow this drought is for real so i mean maybe that happens in 2024 but we got to remember that's that's the rarity there. The, the norm is you get a weather scare and you get timely rains just enough to produce a crop. Or, you know, what happens, Mike, if we actually finally get the rains and we have above mm-hmm. trend line yields? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a lot of bearish talk. We don't need to talk about that. That's, that's going to get the bourbon talk going a lot yeah. faster than it should be today. <laughs> well, let's talk about what will be happening here, the, the guessing game, the predicting game as far as acres are concerned. And what, what are you thinking? Where, where are we headed yeah. for acres this year? And, of course, that can change depending on weather, too, as we get into springtime. But right now, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, right now my thoughts are just looking at uh, USDA tables. I, I'd say we could lose 4 million acres of corn, and we could gain 4 million acres of beans. Mm-hmm. And that actually would kind of balance everything out pretty well. We'd get caught up on the tight soybean situation. We wouldn't grow the bearish ending stock situation for corn. But you're right, it's all about weather. Now, I'm up in northeast South Dakota. This is kind of really where the acres do shift and change. Uh, we had a very good fall and got a lot of work done, got some fertilizer down, um, if the spring is really good, it's going to be hard to lose those corn acres because farmers just like to plant it. So it'll come down to spring weather, but spring weather and price. So we'll be watching those these corn and November soybean contracts. Uh, look for that spread to widen out. I think soybeans really need to gain those acres. And world stocks, uh, what are your thoughts of where we're at there as we look at the big picture? Well, that that's a bit of the problem. Um, world stocks are, are growing uh, you know, we're watching Brazil, and everyone's kind of lowering their soybean crop estimate. I'm lowering their corn crop estimate. That's all well and good for the bulls. The problem is that Argentina, if they come back and have just an average crop, then South America is once again going to have near record supplies. So that will increase world stocks again. But I, I got to say, though, we got to be careful doing that. I mean, that's what I do every winter, too, is I look out and forecast these nice trend line yields and ending stocks typically grow then right and 
And Mother Nature likes to throw curveballs here and there, too. I mean, what if we get crazy wet next spring and we can't get the acres planted because we have high prevent plant in the Dakotas? That, <laughs> where I'm from, that happens quite often, so that's possible, too. So stay tuned, I guess. That's right. It'll be a, a wild year, no doubt, and uh, a lot of things will be coming our way that we can't see right now. So uh, you just you go with what you know at the moment, right, and, and go from there. Dwayne, thanks a lot, and we'll hope for a good 2024. Hey, thank you, Mike. All right, take care. Dwayne Bussey with the Bolt Marketing. Yeah, a lot of uh, questions, a lot of unknowns as we go into the new year, but uh, those are some of the uh, factors we're dealing with right now as far as impacting the markets. Well, what about in this coming year? Will we get a new farm bill done? We're going to talk about that next with the president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Chuck Connor will join us. He's uh, been through a lot of uh, farm bills over the years and helping writing them and been very much a part of putting them together. What's he expect for this one? We'll find out next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the latest episode of The Monthly Grind with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. We'll discuss the latest topics surrounding the corn industry, the relationships between corn and other parts of the agricultural supply chain, the newest initiatives and partnerships from NCGA's Market Development Action Team, and much more. That's the first Wednesday of every month for The Monthly Grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home? And you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect and may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from throughout the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Farming is dangerous. There's dangers all around us. We work around it and we live around it every day. And we just become desensitized to what's around us. We go through safety training and, you know, we try and do these things to make sure accidents don't happen, but you just never know. There are so many farmers that I think take for granted all of the underground utilities that are there. You don't want to hit a gas pipe because that's your life. The other part of it is if you hit certain things, you're liable for it. I mean, we kind 
kind of know what's out here, but all at the same time, you, you just always call. FarmSafe 811 starts with you. Whether you're installing drain tile or doing any sort of digging, always call 811 and wait for any underground lines to be marked and have the depth confirmed. That's farming with care. But if a line does get damaged, go somewhere safe and call 911. Always keep safety in the back of your mind. Just stay humble. For more information, go to farmsafe811.org. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Welcome back. Mike Adams sitting in for Jesse, who will be back with you on Monday. Well, one of the things that did not get done in 2023 was the writing of a new farm bill. Will it get done in 2024? We're going to talk about that with our next guest. Good to have with us Chuck Connor, president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperative. Chuck, good to talk with you. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. It's nice to be back with you. Yeah, like old times, and here we are talking about yet another farm bill, you know, and uh, you've been you've been through a lot of these. Um, I, I wasn't surprised they didn't get one done in 2023. You could kind of see that building up, shaping up to happen. But what about 2024? Do we get it done then? And if so, how early in the year do you think it might get done? Well, that's a great uh, great question, Mike. And, you know, we, we never end things to do farm bills in a presidential election year. That's, that's not a good starting place. Mm-hmm. It has been done. Uh, so, it's, you know, it's certainly not impossible, but it's not ideal. And uh, this one is not going to be uh, a, an easy process. Congress, you know, has set themselves up now with a sort of a two-step budget process here coming up at the uh, end of January, early February. You know, we face potential budget sequesters, which are always so partisan and so controversial. So it's these first few months are just going to be a very partisan, difficult time to sort of throw a farm bill out there. And, and, and we know a farm bill must pass under a bipartisan vote. Neither party can muster the votes to pass a farm bill. So it's got to be bipartisan. I'm not sure these first few months are going to be, you know, a bipartisan period, Mike. So it, it may be that our best play is to let things settle down a little bit. What I would describe perhaps as late spring, early summer, you know, really sort of get into the farm bill at that point. Our differences are not vast in the farm bill. And so it gives me confidence that even if we get a little bit of a late start in 24, we've got an opportunity to get it done, you know, ahead of the presidential election. But you have to know how much money you have to work with, right? And if if that's in flux or in question, then it really makes it hard to write a farm bill. Well, it does. You know, these are unpredictable costs. Um, But we know, generally speaking, Mike, that we've got about the same amount of resources uh, going forward. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, under one scenario we're cut heavily, another scenario not. You know, we we know... This farm bill's got to, you know, be within about the same framework as what we've been operating under, and so that that gives pretty strong guidance, and again creates a circumstance where the differences aren't too great. It's basically a Title One farm program payments versus sort of conservation payments in Title Four, and um, you know, we'll we'll just see how that how that plays out going forward. Um, talk- it's going to require a careful balance. 
Yeah, we're talking with Chuck Connor, president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. And Chuck, I've always said about farm bills, uh, they're more reactionary oftentimes than visionary. I mean, you like to be visionary and think, okay, let's let's project out and let's uh, put together a bill that'll protect us for the unknowns out in the future. But usually, they're about reacting to what's already happened or what is happening at the time. So uh, what what are your thoughts? Is it going to be pretty much what we have now with some tweaks here or there, or do you see any major changes? I don't see any major changes in Title I, Mike. I think people are pretty comfortable with the, the reference price system that we've got in place. You know, they would like to see those reference prices bumped up a little bit to reflect more market realities, but they're comfortable with Title I. I think the revolution does come in. Okay, Chuck, you're cutting out on us a little bit, so we're going to try to see if we can get you repositioned there a little bit, get a little stronger line. We're talking with Chuck Connor, president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives, talking about uh, getting the new farm bill written in 2024 and kind of laid out the, the challenges that we have here and kind of the timeline. Chuck thinks it'll be maybe a little later into the year. Things kind of settle down a little bit. Before we can kind of get into it, Chuck, are you are you still with us? I'm still here, Mike. There you go. Okay, okay. So go ahead, and finish your thought there. Well, I just I think the, the the revolutionary part of this farm bill that we hope to write this year is going to be more in the conservation dollars in that conservation title that I think are really important to us, Mike, to be able to put our best foot forward in the world to basically say. U.S. agriculture is well ahead of anyone in terms of, of climate, you know, spending climate dollars in a wise way. Farmers doing it the best they can with the least amount of footprint impact. Yeah, there on, seems to be a real focus there on, on the that. Yeah. What, what about crop insurance? Uh, there's always that battle. There's always that challenge uh, mm-hmm. to protect crop insurance. How do you see that playing out? Crop insurance, you know, and in, in what I've seen happen over the course of my many farm bills is crop insurance has become the risk management tool for farmers out there. That changing, I think there's broad recognition that, that crop insurance is really uh, sort of what the government does really, really well out there in terms of risk management for farmers. And there may be some efforts to change it, but I just don't see that having much success because it has become just fundamental to our farm economy. Have you seen any proposals that kind of coming out of left field or anything that would kind of throw a real monkey wrench into things uh, or something unexpected from any corners? Because you get more voices, you get more people at the table each time we write a farm bill now. Uh, What are you seeing and hearing? Well, you do get more voice. You know, you have to remind yourself, Mike, that eight percent of the dollars in this farm farm bill, you know, farm program kind of dollars. And so, I think you know the biggest challenge we've got is is just sort of balancing those interests. Where interests really now, you know, people out there uh, as part of the supplemental nutritional assistance program, you know, tens of millions. Americans being a part of that program, and most of those people have no idea, you know, sort of where their food comes from, if you will. And within all of that, we've got to balance those interests and come up with a, you know, a, a, a farm bill that can get a majority vote in both parties at a time when both parties are not working together at all 
and that, that's our biggest challenge. It's not the differences. It's just the politics and the season that we're in that make this a very difficult bill to write in a presidential election year. Yeah, those food assistance programs have been a real uh, kind of a stumbling block uh, in the last uh, couple of farm bills. Uh, and they do get very political, and you bring a lot more voices in with uh, uh, passionate voices, if you will, on those causes. Uh, do you see problems working that out this year? Is that going to be another uh, uh, hurdle for uh, the Farm Bill writers to overcome, or do you, do you see some consensus there? Well, um, I, I'm not sure I consensus. Most uh, people that are heavily involved in the writing of the Farm Bill on the Republican side of the equation recognize that, that there's probably just not a lot of opportunity to make changes in that SNAP program going forward. If they do, you can sort of eliminate any chance of getting Democratic votes out there. Um, and that, you know, that's just, again, a political reality we're dealing with. It's where all the money is, but yet uh, to make any changes, I think, just sparks partisan controversy that probably cannot be overcome if we, if we want this to be a bipartisan bill in 2024. Yeah, that has really become a huge issue, and, and I think the public at large is really not aware or doesn't understand that uh, when you look at the percentages of the farm bill and farm spending, a very small percentage actually goes to the production side, right? Uh, most of it goes yeah. to these other yeah. these other areas. I'm sick to that cause. I mean, uh, the first... Farm bills I worked on, Mike, uh, of the cost of the farm bill was nutrition uh, related, and everything else was in some way, you know, uh, in going uh, directly or indirectly to the farmer. And, and you know, we've, we've sort of flipped those numbers totally around over the couple of decades. And a lot of people, you know, like like to see some modest change back in the However, we expect to get it done this year. Chuck, it's good to talk with you again. Uh, it's always interesting to watch how these things develop and uh, uh, come together, and we hope that we'll soon here in 2024. Thanks a lot. Good to talk with you. Have a happy new year. Yeah, happy new year to you, Mike. Take care. Take you too. Chuck Connor, president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Again, we apologize. We had some phone line connections there, not the best uh, connection in the world. He's kind of cutting in and out on us, and we, we're sorry about that. Uh, Chuck's gone through a lot of these farm bills and has had a lot uh, a lot of input in them and always appreciate his, his per, perceptions of where we are at. So, again, it's going to be a challenge. He thinks it will come together. It sounds like pretty close to what we have had the, these last few years, but uh, get into those, uh, those feeding programs, and that's where it gets very, very difficult to come to a consensus. So we'll see what they do in 2024. Well, we have some big transportation issues to talk about next, so stay with us. You're listening to AOA. AOA. 
The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders. The baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Risfet with this market update. Well, it's the end of the month, the quarter, and the year here today. Volume and price action were minimal overnight as the trade is looking for another big, long holiday weekend. Fundamental help remains hard to come by, and Brazil has another weekend of beneficial precipitation on tap. Now, that better weather in South America is putting some pressure on corn and beans. Soybeans and soy products are lower again, with spot soy meal working on a third straight lower finish, and March bean oil looking at a possible sixth lower finish in the past seven days. Palm oil futures are also likely headed for a 10% loss for the year. At China's Dalian Exchange, overnight soybean oil and palm oil futures sank 1.9% for soybean oil and 2.1% for palm oil. Crude oil futures are modestly higher here this morning, but dropped more than $2 per barrel yesterday. Soybean deliveries were 382 contracts on first notice day against the soon-to-expire January futures. That's adding to the weaker tone. U.S. soybean demand continues to struggle after Brazil's record-large soy crop and aggressive export posture dominated world soy demand in the past year. Some analysts fear USDA might be forced to lower the U.S. soy export estimate by 30 to 50 million bushels in the upcoming report in January here, as sales and shipments are remaining down a hefty 16% for the year. And soy crush margins are remaining profitable, but well down from the November highs. Corn is also slightly lower for the third consecutive day and resting about 5 cents above the contract low in thin holiday trade. Corn continues to struggle, as it has for the past several months, staying above the 20-day moving average. Spot corn futures have meandered in a sideways to lower pattern as ending corn stocks are projected to be the highest in five years. Export demand remains strong with sales and shipments now up 37% from a year ago and U.S. corn should be able to capture the lion's share of the world demand over the next few months. The dollar is slightly lower this morning while crude oil prices are about a half a buck up. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. I'm Shanola Hampton. Every day, millions of people face hunger. Today, I will share with you some of their experiences. I'm stuck between paying for medications or paying for food. John from Maine. After paying my bills, I can buy groceries. It's sad to say, food comes last. Alice from Oregon. I thought pantries were for less fortunate people, but anybody could be less fortunate in a day or even a second. Claire from Virginia. The Feeding America network of food banks helps provide over six billion meals to people in need each year. No one should have to worry where their next meal will come from. Together, we can end hunger. Learn more at feedingamerica.org.
informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And Mike Adams sitting in for Jesse today as we wrap up 2023. Jesse will be back with you on Monday to kick off the new year. Well, one of the things that... uh, We talked a lot about in 2023 and will again going into 2024 transportation issues. And joining us now is Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, good to talk with you again. I understand uh, you've been to the Panama Canal recently. Uh, Give us an update. What did you see there? Yeah, so the the Board of Directors of the Soy Transportation Coalition, we had our annual meeting in in Panama. And kind of the reason for that is if, if we expect and for farmers to be effective advocates on an issue, they first have to understand it, and nothing really enhances understanding like actually seeing the infrastructure in our case directly and to visit um, you know one on one with the Panama Canal Authority. And so it was a real good you know opportunity to to see a real critical link in our supply chain. We visited both the Atlantic side and the Pacific side. You know, it's one of those unique places in the world where you can go from the Atlantic, you can drive from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean in an hour. Um, but it's um, but really one of the big topics of, of our discussion was the impact of drought uh, on the operations of the Panama Canal. You know, we, we obviously focus, and rightfully so, on uh, low water conditions on the Mississippi River. Well, the Panama Canal is experiencing low water conditions, which is impeding the operation of the canal. So they, they've had to employ a number of water saving measures. And one of those is to limit the number of transits per day that can utilize the canal. Normally they have about 36 to 40 uh, transits a day. Uh, they're now down to 22. Uh, they are going to be able to increase that to 24 in the middle of January. So that's good news, but we're still significantly lower than normal operations. And unfortunately the, this is having an impact on the dry bulk sector, the uh, which soybeans and, and grain uh, typically use those kind of vessels. So agriculture, unfortunately, is, is in many cases on the outside looking in. Mike, several years ago, I was at the Panama Canal. It really is quite an experience. It's, it was very eye-opening to me. I, I'm, I remember sitting up in the, uh, the control uh, area, the control room up there, looking out, and it the the number of ships that were out there i just i described it as an international parking lot for ships i mean uh, you don't it's hard to grasp the volume of uh, traffic through the panama canal until you actually see it and you see the ships that are lined up getting through there and then if you throw in a scenario like you're just describing of, of low water conditions limiting that even more uh, i can't imagine what the the backup uh, must be like, and how that has a ripple effect through uh, the whole system, then uh, globally. Yeah, you know, I could look out um, in my hotel room, and you, I could see the the lineup of ships <clears throat> waiting to to transit the canal. Um, you know, one of the things that was notable is not just what we saw, but what we did not see. Uh, there are still ships utilizing the Panama Canal. You know, we saw a couple vessels transporting automobiles go through the canal. We saw a couple container ships uh, transit the canal. We saw a liquefied natural gas vessel going through the canal. But what we did not see uh, were any dry bulk vessels that typically are used for soybeans or grain or other kind of commodities 
And usually when I go down there, I'll see at least one or, or more dry bulk vessels. But unfortunately, we did not see that. And you know, kind of the reason for that is if you're limiting the number of transits uh, on a daily basis, uh, what tends to happen is the the customers who pay more for for their toll for the tolls, and there's a toll assessed every time you go through the canal. And you know, the, there's kind of an equation that the Panama Canal Authority uses to uh, assign toll rates. And one of one of the components of that is the the value of the freight. And of course, uh, an ocean vessel transporting thousands of automobiles is going to be more expensive freight than a shipload carrying 2 million bushels of soybeans. And so as a result, if you're going to limit the number of transits per day, um, the Canal Authority is obviously going to, you, know, you, you tend to prioritize those customers that pay higher toll rates, which uh, unfortunately that's not agriculture. We just don't have the ability to absorb those kind of high toll rates. Um, a container vessel can easily pay five hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars to transit the canal in the form of toll. Um, a dry bulk vessel will pay one hundred thousand, one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So a pretty significant disparity. So it was it was you know interesting to to note not not just what we saw but what we did not see. And so agricultural exporters are having to to look elsewhere to to try to connect with their their customers around the world. I was going to say, what are the options? Uh, what are uh, there? There aren't a whole lot of options, right? But what what can we do? Yeah, unfortunately, there's there's not a lot of you know really you know compelling ones. Um, they all come with uh, an assortment of challenges. Um, there has been a significant increase in the amount of, of agricultural vessels utilizing the Suez Canal, um, but as we know, um, the the Suez route is is fraught with some real challenges right now with uh, these Yemeni uh, terrorists that have attacked a number of ocean vessels after they've, you know, transited the the Suez Canal um, and they're they're on the Red Sea, um, and so a number of ocean carriers have actually decided to uh, forego utilizing the Suez Canal or se- severely limit that, um, and so there's obviously challenges associated with the Suez route. Um, there's a natural draw area in the United States, a geographic area that tends to gravitate naturally to the Pacific North, Northwest to be a rail. But then um, when you have the challenges that we do with the Mississippi River and the Panama Canal, both experiencing drought conditions, that, that geographic area, um, agricultural shippers are needing to expand that. <clears throat> so there are a number of soybeans and, and grain that's being put on to rail cars, which is not the really preferred route in certain areas of the country and maybe further than what you would like to go to the Pacific Northwest, but they're still doing that nonetheless just because the, the, the Panama Canal route is not is not very viable right now. So there's there are a number clearly there are a number of challenges and you know the concern that we have is, you know, right now the US is the preeminent supplier of soybeans on the global marketplace. The the South American inventories are, are very low. Um, so we naturally have kind of a competitive advantage right now, um, just given the fact that we are the main supplier. But when the Brazilian harvest comes online in early 2024, then they're going to be in a real strong position given our supply chain challenges because Brazil still preeminently uses 
their southern ports at Santos and Paranagua to serve the international marketplace. And when you look at that on the map, all they have to do is simply to go to Asia. They simply have to head east and go across the Atlantic Ocean. They're south of the of the southern tip of Africa. They don't have to use the Panama Canal. They don't have to use the Suez Canal. They can just simply go straight uh, to to Asia. So they're going to be in a pretty competitive position. Obviously, they, they they grow produce a lot of soybeans, but from a logistical perspective, they're going to be able to access uh, these Asian customers more effectively than we are. Yeah, that's quite an advantage for them. You know, sometimes we're so focused on producing and selling that uh, we overlook or take for granted uh, that middle step. That's the transportation, and, and that is so critical. And and you get one uh, trouble spot, and it, it really has a ripple effect throughout the whole system. Mike, before we let you go, your thoughts on uh, the, the Texas rail closures uh, back open now, but with the whole uh, border situation and impacting that, it, it kind of pointed out uh, a, vulnerabil- a vulnerability there, too, with our infrastructure. Yeah, you know, we were happy to see those those critical points uh, reopen. But, you know, we, we've been talking about some of these weather-induced challenges to our supply chain, like the Mississippi River, like the Panama Canal, with the drought conditions. This situation with rail at the Texas-Mexico border, uh, that's a human-induced um, problem. And, you know, we've got this, you know, significant challenge along our border. And I understand that there is a lot of discussion and debate right now about how to solve this, this border crisis that we're experiencing. But surely erecting an obstacle between U.S. farmers and their Mexican customers is not one of those solutions. Mexico is our number two customer for whole soybeans, number two for soybean meal, number four for soybean oil. And all, and the vast majority of that gets transported by rail. So uh, we, we just can't um, allow you know, this really important market, our Mexican market for U.S. soybean farmers to really get um, you know, pulled in and adversely affected by this broader challenge that's happening uh, at the border. So we keep an eye on that, and we keep an eye on these river levels, too. Uh, are we seeing some improvement? Seeing a little bit, um, you know, and we'll see what the kind of rains that fell into particularly the Ohio River and Mississippi River watersheds, what that will what that will do. Um, we're seeing some marginal improvement. We're still lower, particularly in Memphis, about 10 feet lower now than we were at the same time last year. Um, so obviously we're, we're still kind of in a position of weakness related to that. Um, so obviously we, we definitely need some additional precipitation. Happy what we received over these last several days. We obviously need more. Yep, moisture is needed. Mike, good to talk with you. Have a good 2024. Hey, happy New Year to you. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Well, we'll kind of wrap things up for the year with another look back and look ahead, this time for the beef industry. Coming up next, Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We'll look back at uh, some of the accomplishments and the challenges for the beef industry in this past year and what does he expect in 2024. We'll find out next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA.
Christmas is potent, born of intention fueled by commitment. It's seeing things through, always showing up. And we know a thing or two about promises here at Susan G. Komen. Over 40 years ago, we locked arms with you toward one vision, a world without breast cancer. By investing in life-saving research and standing up for patient rights, we are shifting the system so all people everywhere get the care they deserve. Because if you've just been diagnosed and don't know where to turn, we've got you. If you can't afford the treatment you need, we've got you. And if you are driven to raise money to honor the best friend you've just lost, we have a place for you here because of you. We're supporting those who need help today while tirelessly searching for tomorrow's cures. Ending breast cancer needs all of us. Visit Komen.org and be a part of the Susan G. Komen community today. As veterans, we're no strangers to helping others. It's what we were taught, trained, and told to do. It could be for anything. Helping a friend move. Listening to a fellow veteran for hours at any hour of the day. Or just simply making time for people. A neighbor, a loved one, or even a stranger. We're often the first to help others. There's no question about it. But we do have one question for the veterans listening. When was the last time you reached out for help? Perhaps it's time to do for yourself what you would do for others. If you or someone you know needs resources, whether it's for stress, finances, employment, or mental health, don't wait. Reach out. Find more information at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Charlie Carter, Product Quality and Additives Manager for CHS Refined Fuels Commercial Supply, about how the right fuel will keep equipment running in the winter. Charlie, what happens to diesel fuel in equipment when temperatures drop, and why does that matter? Standard number two diesel fuel generally does not fare well in cold temperatures. Diesel fuel can form crystals and clog filters and fuel lines, and prolonged freezing temps can cause engines to not operate properly. That can basically lead to that dreaded downtime that we all hate. So uh, it's really important to take precautions to prevent these issues from occurring, especially in cold weather conditions. Charlie, when should farmers switch their diesel blends? Yeah, so every situation is going to be slightly different and somewhat temperature dependent. So it's important that you work with a knowledgeable fuel supplier who has a grasp on the diesel characteristics in their geography. With that being said, you should be blending your tanks to a winter blend when temperatures are right around the freezing point or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's important to blend early and when the fuel is at least 10 degrees above the cloud point of the fuel or it won't mix well together. When you're thinking about cost and performance, what's the best way to determine the best winter fuel blend? So you will need to decide really what's best for your individual operation and what temperature you expect to be able to operate your equipment in. So if your operation relies on your equipment needing to be up in those harshest climates, you're undoubtedly going to need to invest in a diesel blend that's going to meet those needs. You're going to run the risk of being stranded on the side of the road, unable to perform your critical tasks. So it's best to discuss the specific needs with your fuel supplier as they're going to be able to deliver the high quality Senex fuels at the correct blends for optimal performance and peace of mind. Well, thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. 
Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted card to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back. Mike Adams sitting in for Jesse Allen. Jesse will be back with you on Monday and kicking off a new week and a new year. And what an interesting year ahead it will be for agriculture. And to stay up to date on all these important issues, be sure to tune in to AOA. And I know Jesse has a lot of things planned for the coming year. Coverage of some big meetings coming up and just the uh, the daily updating of these key issues. Um, we just talked about a huge one, and that's the transportation issue. And I, I mentioned this in our conversation with Mike Steenhook. I, I think we do tend to take transportation for granted, whether it's our roads or our rivers or, or ports or whatever it may be. But we're seeing how critical they are and how uh, if you have a problem in any one of those areas, it, it does have a ripple effect throughout the system and uh, creates some real challenges. All right, we're joined now by Ethan Lane, uh, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Ethan, good to talk with you again. You too, Mike. Hope you had a good Christmas. Real good, and looking forward to 2024 uh, for the beef industry. What are your priorities uh, that you've set for the coming year? You know, we are working through that process now. Uh, We set our priorities every year uh, with our membership at our convention in Orlando, but it is definitely going to be an important year uh, to get those priorities right. When we look at the landscape, whether it's the presidential election, the extremely tight margins in Congress, the looming farm bill that has just been extended, obviously, in the last few weeks until September of next year, uh, the slate of rulemakings we're seeing from USDA, the Department of Interior, and EPA, all of which uh, could have really uh, detrimental consequences for ranchers and farmers across the country. Uh, There's a lot going on at the moment, and, you know, whenever you do that in the middle of the kind of political environment we're in, uh, it kind of tends to supercharge it, and and that certainly is the case at the moment. So we're expecting some pretty robust conversation going into our convention in Orlando uh, and hopefully some clear priorities coming out of that meeting. Uh, for for what my team should be focusing on in Washington on our members' behalf in 2024. Yeah, these policy decisions that an administration makes certainly have great impact, such as uh, allowing beef into this country from other from other countries, even uh, if uh, we feel that there are some big concerns that uh, need to be addressed. You know, it, it, it's it's difficult to to remember that you know. We, we think of ourselves in the cattle industry as kind of our own independent entity working through different problems, but we're part of this, this global, uh, you know, political system. And 
this administration has made it clear that, that uh, over our objections, they are going to use the consumption footprint of consumers in the U.S. to influence policy overseas. And what they mean when they say that is, rather than prioritizing open, opening new markets for our products to be sold into, they're looking at how to open the U.S. market to foreign products in order to get those governments that are sending those products to do what they want, essentially, they being the Biden administration. It's a disappointing way for this administration to appoint, approach trade. It, it harms farmers and ranchers. When we let countries like Paraguay ship beef into the United States, having not had an on-site inspection from FSIS or, or APHIS in nine or ten years, um, you know, that is, that is a, a reckless way to proceed. It's, it's not focused on the farmers and ranchers. The Secretary Vilsack and others uh, claim endlessly that they are trying to help. Um, and it's disappointing that we're yet going down this road again after several years of calling for Brazil to be shut down with no action from the administration. Yeah, you, you make a great point. Not only are we seemingly just throwing open the doors and letting uh, these products in, but we've seen really out of this administration hardly anything at all, crickets really, when it comes to trade deals or opening up um, uh, new markets. Well, they, they pay a lot of lip service to you know, equalizing the marketplace and fairness and competition in the marketplace. And, and what that means is that's code for government intervention in a free market, whether that's the Packers and Stockyards rulemaking that they're going through, whether that was the ill-fated uh, Fisher-Grassley 5014 bill that, that kind of died this Congress. Um, you know, this is an extension of that. You know, they, 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 they're, they're making it harder for cattle producers where it really counts um, on some of these import rules. Um, and then trying to appease them by saying they're working on all this fairness and they're going to guarantee them a profit somehow uh, through a government program, which has never been the case in the history of a free market. Um, on the other hand, it's a disingenuous way to, to go about it, but it's an election year we're going into. And, you know, this is how presidents sometimes think they can get reelected by telling people what they want to hear or, you know, or pouring water down their back and telling them it's raining. I mean, that's that's unfortunately kind of the era that we seem to be in at this moment with this administration. And we've got to endure another year of it. Um, and see where we end up. Yeah, we hear a lot about we're working on it. We're getting we're we're getting things done, but we we don't seem to see the results. No, and and you know you know we see a little incremental progress. We've worked really hard on waters of the United States as an industry over the last decade, and the rulemaking that's currently in place um, that we're still in court trying to make even better uh, reduces the amount of waters that the federal government could exert control over by sixty five percent. That's a massive victory for farmers and ranchers around the country. We're not satisfied with that, and we want to keep, keep our foot on the gas, as are uh, the, the state attorneys general in a couple dozen states that are still continuing their litigation as well. Um, you know, we're continuing to push the needle on things like the gray wolf um, that, that has long been recovered and acknowledged by Republican and Democratic administrations alike, um, but that the environmentalists continue to fight us on in court. We're continuing that fight. We're, we're trying to keep that pressure on in those areas um, that really are felt by farmers and ranchers around the country when the federal government gets involved in their business. Um, but it is a game of inches, you know, and, and, and then some days it feels like it's a game we're playing backwards. But um, it's important to keep that fight up year over year and never relent or give an inch more than we have to uh, because it, it, it's not ground that ever gets given back when you're talking about dealing with the federal government. Seems like everything winds up in court. You know, I, that's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate reality of, of where we are in this country. No matter what the issue is, you are 100% right, Mike. Somebody somewhere is going to sue over it, or a lawyer is going to convince somebody they ought to sue over it. 
and and that's absolutely true with federal rulemakings. It's 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 unfortunately um, you know, looming as a threat in in how we price cattle, how we sell cattle, um, how consumers consume beef at the marketplace uh, at every different segment of the industry and, and in every other industry besides ours. Um, the litigation threat is, is really a serious problem in this country. And it seems like judges have more power and influence uh, over things now than they maybe have ever had before. It's uh, kind of the way we're going right now. Ethan, good to talk with you again. We'll hope for a very good 2024. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Ethan Lane. Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I've enjoyed sitting in for Jesse. I hope you have a great, happy new year and a wonderful 2024 from all of us here at AOA. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Granton, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Everyone has a community to lean on. A neighborhood, school, kids' teams, where you worship, work, work out, or any other place or group where you choose to belong. Communities can provide support when you need it, and even when you don't know you do. Like when it comes to preventing underage drinking and other substance use. You've talked with your kids and shared clear expectations, but you're not with them every minute. Your community members, friends and relatives, Teachers and coaches, faith leaders, and other important adults in your kids' lives can be your eyes, ears, and a supportive influence when you're not around, reinforcing your messages with your kids and alerting you to warning signs of underage drinking or other substance use. So talk with your kids about these issues and involve the members of your community to help keep your kids safe. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit talktheyhearyou.samsa.gov.